Hello, and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. You've played Monopoly, right? Well, then you've had the experience, perhaps, when you were raking in the dough, your pile of 500s towering high as your ownership of the right kind of properties, utilities, and railroads put you in the finest fettle. You donned spats, wore white tie to dinner at home, and twirled the wax in your white mustache until you could pierce the olive in your martini— But then, all of a sudden, in the middle of your Monopoly game, your friend, not liking this kind of behavior at all, upended your merriment by flipping the Monopoly board over entirely. That is the irresistible tease to a whistle-stop episode about the conflict between J. Pierpont Morgan and President Theodore Roosevelt. Morgan was the wealthy industrialist after whom the Monopoly man, known to his creator as Rich Uncle Pennybags, was fashioned. But instead of your friend Kevin McDonald flipping the board over in the middle of his rec room until the little green houses sprinkled the room like chives on a twice-baked potato, it was President Theodore Roosevelt who upended the comfortable accumulation of doubloons that upset Morgan's plans. Our whistle stop today is Saturday, February 22nd, 1902. It's past 10 o'clock in the evening, and President Theodore Roosevelt is receiving fancy company in the White House The executives of some of America's largest trusts and businesses have just come over to the White House from a dinner. Dinner at the home of Senator and former railroad executive Chauncey Depew. It was amazing that all of these fancy executives were in town at all. Washington had been muffled in feet and feet of snow from the worst snowstorm of the season. The storm, in fact, was so bad it had delayed the arrival of Prince Henry of Prussia. An arrival that captivated the city when it finally happened. The new President Roosevelt had only been hanging his felt Rough Rider hat in the executive mansion for five months. Five months after that gloomy day when he descended the highest peak in New York State, Mount Tahawas in the Adirondacks, to be greeted by mountain guides with the awful news that President McKinley had died, making Theodore Roosevelt an ex-vice president. The visit to the White House at 10 p.m. on February 22nd, I should say, 1902, was bristling with unspoken tension. During the dinner that had preceded it, the fancy men from New York had behaved glumly, reported historian Henry Adams. The financier, J.P. Morgan, was, according to Adams, sulking like a child and in a foul humor over the case of Northern Securities, in which he was a partner. Gerald Helfrich, uh, in a book called An Unlikely Trust, says Adams also described the atmosphere of the dinner preceding the visit to the White House as black. Morgan was irritated because several days earlier, Roosevelt's attorney general had taken on Morgan's northern securities through a legal action. Morgan, of course, was furious because he donated to Theodore Roosevelt's campaigns. And after all, they belonged, or I should say Morgan belonged, to the same social club as Roosevelt's father. Simmering beneath the pleasantries then that night at the White House was the fact that the men of fanciness from New York had just come after blowing through delicious dish after dish on fancy china and drinking claret. While, meanwhile, while around the country, the poorer folk bristled with anger, and the middle-class folk bristled with fear of a revolution from those who had suffered as a result of the men pushing around the last bits of food on their fancy china. 
This was what the president was worried about when he entertained these men, and it was on his mind in those early months of his presidency. But despite the menace in the air at that White House meeting, the the matter of northern securities was not discussed at all. According to a newspaper account, after about 11 o'clock in the evening when the men were leaving the White House, a reporter asked Senator DePew if the swells and the president had discussed northern securities at all no the senator said not a word of it it was a social call but then the newsman wrote this is there there is a strong belief in well-informed circles that some one of these men will have an interview with one or more government officials about the railway combinations northern securities was a uh, railway conglomerate before returning to new york in case the reporter's readers didn't quite get the joke he then explained that a representative of the banking house, J.P. Morgan, had recently met with the president. This account of the evening is put together from Helferich's An Unlikely Trust and also Theodore Pringle's book, Teddy Roosevelt, A Biography. The meeting that would take place the next day, on the 23rd of February, after this evening meeting at the White House, between Roosevelt and Morgan was one of the most cinematic confrontations in the White House, a confrontation in which there's even a cameo played by the famous Resolute Desk. Teddy Roosevelt reshaped the American economic landscape and in so doing reshaped the presidency and the power for which it could be used. Using a piece of legislation some thought moribund, Roosevelt gambled by taking on Northern Securities and the biggest financier in the world, J.P. Morgan. I should note Northern Securities was a holding company that controlled the main rail lines from Chicago to the Pacific Northwest. Morgan, of course, was a key partner in this. And like Roosevelt, he was a strong-willed fellow and had the skill to to force his and impress his will upon other men. The battle between these two men would start the reorientation of the federal government from one that worked in the service of the business interests into one that was more aligned with the general public and the values of trying to spread prosperity across the country. Rebalancing was uh, Roosevelt's goal to rebalance the power dynamic between the corporations and the government in the service of the people. And the Northern Securities case was one of 40 that Roosevelt would bring during his administration, but perhaps the most important because it was the first. In 1902, America was a nation of 80 million people. According to Edmund Morris in Theodore Rex, at the time, at least 65% of the national wealth was attributable to the trusts, the hulking business conglomerates that owned entire American industries. That statistic from Morris did not even include the newest and most gigantic peanut cluster of them all. That was Andrew Carnegie's merger of his steel company with nine other steel companies, United States Steel. As Edmund Morris writes, capitalized at almost $1.5 billion dollars, and feeding more than one million people was virtually a nation in and of itself. And so when a company like U.S. Steel was a big trust, it owned methods of production and distribution. So when it gained control of the railroad, U.S. Steel raised the freight rate per ton of ore to 62 cents per 30 miles of haul. That was a more than 100% difference in the per mile freight rates. And that was made possible by the fact that the U.S. Steel had monopoly over that crucial rail line. So you've got the trusts squeezing profits, charging more because they're the only game in town. And the men who ran these trusts were no picnic. Charles Francis Adams Jr., quoted in Richard Hofstadter's famous book, The American Political Tradition, Charles Francis Adams, who uh, was ending his unhappy career as a railroad executive, observed that among all the tycoons he had met, not one, would I care to meet again in this world or the next— 
nor is one associated in my mind with the idea of humor, thought, or refinement. These enormous hulking corporations were not widely beloved across the land because of those kinds of fellows, but also because they just had a tight fist on the money. In, 19, in 1892, Henry Clay Frick was shot three times and stabbed during a steel strike. John D. Rockefeller and executives of Standard Oil faced several bomb plots. Labor unions tried to fix the imbalances with crippling work stoppages like the Pullman strike, the Homestead strike, the Haymarket strike. Ironworkers were engaged in a multi-year bombing campaign that culminated in the destruction of the Los Angeles Times building in 1910. As William Jennings Bryan, the successful multi-candidate presidential candidate, said, the extremes of society are being driven further and further apart. And it was these extremes that, in fact, put Roosevelt in the White House. William McKinley, his former boss and two-term president, was assassinated by Leon Kolgaz an anarchist who believed there was a great injustice in American society, an inequality which allowed the wealthy to enrich themselves at the expense of the poor. And Kalgaz believed that the reason for all of this was the misalignment of the federal government itself. And so he went after shooting McKinley to fix this problem. It got him the electric chair, but it did kill McKinley. And frankly, if you want to take this to its logical conclusion, uh, it did usher in the Roosevelt trust-busting administration, and so in some sense it did achieve the assassin's goals. Roosevelt's response to the presidency once he got it, as Jeremy Surrey puts it in The Impossible Presidency, his uh, book that came out in September of this year, Roosevelt's response was that he wanted, quote, to bring energy, wisdom, and courage to what he called new problems of domestic dislocations of an industrializing economy. Hofstadter gives it to us richly. Here's what he writes about Roosevelt. The ends for which Roosevelt and his peers entered politics were not mere boodling or personal advancement, searching for goals that they consider more lofty, ideals above section or class or material gain. They were bent on some genuinely national service, sought a larger theater in which to exercise their statecraft, and looked down with the disdain of aristocrats upon those who, as Roosevelt said, had never felt the thrill of a generous emotion. Adventurers, in a sense, they undoubtedly were, tired of the kind of moneymaker whose soul has grown hard while his body has grown soft. Edmund Morris wrote about Roosevelt's concern this way, how to care for those millions of Americans out there in the twilight, how to articulate their vague feelings, and despite general peace and prosperity, something deep down was wrong with the United States. Here was his challenge as president, to put into speech and political action what they, they being the people out in the country, felt in their hearts but could not express. His appeal must be to neither reactionary nor radical, but to every man, the farmer in the red shirt. And so here's Roosevelt's philosophy a little more about business. He had publicly warned in a speech at the Minnesota Fair while he was still vice president, the vast industrial and corporate fortunes, the vast combinations of capital, which have marked the development of our industrial system, create new conditions and necessitate a change from the old attitude of the state and the nation towards property. More and more, it is evident that the state, and if necessary, the nation, has got to possess the right of supervision and control as regards the great corporations, which are its creatures. Four days after Roosevelt said that in Minnesota, McKinley was shot. Here's Surrey uh, quoting in his book from a letter that Roosevelt wrote in 1901, in the summer just before he became president. Roosevelt wrote this, I do not see very much of the big moneyed men in New York simply because very few of them possess the traits which would make them companionable to me or would 
make me feel that it was worthwhile dealing with them. To spend the day with them at Newport or on one of their yachts or even to dine with them, save under exceptional circumstances, fills me with frank horror. Now I'm going to read you a long riff from Theodore Roosevelt and his time. This is about Roosevelt as the man of action. So we've got this underlying philosophy. We've got this rot in the nation and these unpleasant character monopolists in in charge of the trusts. This is from Theodore Roosevelt and his time. There was general recognition not only in Washington but throughout the country that Roosevelt's accession to the presidency meant the opening of a new epoch in, in national history. The Republican Party had been for many years becoming more and more the party not merely for conservatives but of reactionaries. Its policy was controlled by the great industrial and commercial interests, which had grown into enormous proportions during the preceding quarter of a century. These, with the Allied railway interests, constituted a veritable imperium in imperio, an invisible government more powerful than the government itself. The representatives of these interests argued, with all the sincerity of profound conviction, that since under their guidance and through their development the country had attained the greatest prosperity it had ever known, it was only just that the country should be given the kind of government most favorable to them. Their reasoning had never found more complete acceptance than was the case under President McKinley's administration. The first note of protest lifted by any Republican official and leader had come from Roosevelt while he was governor of New York. The entire country had heard it, and the powerful interests whose dominion it threatened had combined in a determined effort to render him powerless by placing him on the shelf of the vice presidency, thus retiring him from public life. Knowing the man through his course in the governorship, they knew what confronted them when he became the executive of the nation. The period of complacent acquiescence in things as they were had closed. A new period of action in the field of things that ought to be was about to open. Henry Adams, who had known Roosevelt long and intimately, in his very remarkable book, The Education of Henry Adams, said of him as he entered upon the presidency, Power when wielded by abnormal energy is the most serious of facts, and all Roosevelt's friends knew that this restless and combative energy was more than normal, Roosevelt, more than any other living man within the range of notoriety, showed the singular primitive quality that belongs to ultimate matter, the quality that medieval theology assigned to God. He was pure act. Well, that's a little, that's a little purple, but it's just what we want. Well, it's just what we want when we're thinking about Teddy Roosevelt and putting him into context. And also, when you think about the action hero presidency, which you've heard me talk about for the last. Well, I don't know, since we were born. The action hero presidency, that's a pretty good description of it and what people want of it. So this is the this is the frame of action that Roosevelt had and what people expected of him. After McKinley's death, Roosevelt met his cabinet on the train. And this is uh, how those men are described from in Edmund Morris's book. McKinley had chosen carefully a more orthodox phalanx of Republicans would be difficult to assemble. To a man, these conservatives believed in the sanctity of property and the patrician responsibilities of wealth and power. They were prepared in return to give trust lords such as J.P. Morgan their favorable support in disputes between capital and labor or local and interstate commerce. They tacitly acknowledged that Wall Street, rather than the White House, had executive control 
of the economy, with the legislative cooperation of Congress and the judicial backing of the Supreme Court. This conservative alliance forged after the Civil War was intended to last well into the new century, if not forever. Uh, This is more from Edmund Morris in Theodore Rex. Wall Street had reacted optimistically to the news that Roosevelt was president. Opening prices had soared one to six points higher. A spokesman for the financial community called these signs clear and reassuring. Roosevelt was relieved to hear the good news. I don't care a damn about stocks and bonds, but I don't want to see them go down the first day I am president. I should note that uh, Senator Mark Hanna, who had been a supporter of McKinley's, a Republican who was not a fan of Roosevelt's, uh, said this upon McKinley's death and the fear that Roosevelt would be an activist president hurting business. He said, now look, that damned cowboy is president of the United States. So with these fears about Roosevelt himself and that he would turn the federal government away from business and its obligations to keep business going, Morgan sends two of his folks to the White House. And the president describes, this is in Ron Cherno's book, The House of Morgan, uh, Roosevelt, after meeting with Morgan's two men, uh, says that they were, quote, arguing like attorneys for a bad case. And at the bottom of their hearts, each would know this if he were not the representative of so strong and dominant a character as Pierpont Morgan. So they come to basically say, lay off business. Roosevelt kind of sees through them. Now, Roosevelt tried to outline the balance of his presidency this way. He said, we shall have to work out the methods of controlling the big corporations without paralyzing the energies of the business community. So he wasn't a socialist all the way over at Eugene Debs, who was rattling around talking about radical uh, things like women's suffrage and ending child labor. When Roosevelt's brother-in-law, Douglas Robinson, wrote from Wall Street to urge the new president to do nothing to destroy business confidence, Roosevelt answered, quote, I intend to be most conservative, but in the interests of the corporations themselves and above all in the interests of the country. I intend to pursue cautiously but steadily the course to which I have been publicly committed and which I am certain is the right course. Well, he's going to be conservative, (laughs) but the course to which he has committed himself is one that they would consider radical. If you were casting a robber baron villain, all the applicants in line before J.P. Morgan would have more free time than they'd hoped for because the talent scout would zip right past them and pick Mr. Morgan out of the line, even if that talent scout were blindfolded. Here is a description of Morgan from Michael Woolrich's book, Unreasonable Men, Theodore Roosevelt and the Republican Rebels Who Created Progressive Politics. This is the description of Morgan. His nose was grotesque swollen and purple from chronic rosacea. The rest of his features arranged themselves differentially around it. Thick brows straddled the bridge, dark eyes glowered from cavities on either side, a ragged mustache drooped from the nostrils, nearly nearly obscuring his mouth. His personality offered little to compensate for his appearance. Acquaintances described him as taciturn, gruff, and imperious. He barked at people. Even his business partner complained he is an impossible man to have any talk with. The nearest approach he makes is an occasional grunt. One nod of the massive head, wrote Edmund Morris, was security for $50 million. One snort of the carbuncled nose was enough to sweep all opposition from his path. The review of reviews saluted him as, quote, the most masterful personality in the country, perhaps in the world. Here's what Ron Chernow writes in the House of Morgan. He was a radical force, unsettling to small-town America with its agrarian traditions and faith in its own innocence. However much businessmen might respect him, he was now an ogre in the popular press. One Broadway hit show depicted devils 
blowing across a fiery seat as they sang in unison. This seat's reserved for Morgan, the great financial gorgon. The power was understood around the globe. Morgan pushed for a transatlantic shipping trust and struck agreements with the Germans to consolidate his hold on all lines of transport, both rail and sea. The web of interests and its reach frightened them in, in the States and in Great Britain. According to Ron Chernow's House of Morgan in the streets of London, peddlers sold penny sheets entitled License to Stay on Earth. And they were signed, these licenses to stay on Earth, by J. Pierpont Morgan. In 1901, to safeguard their American investment, London financiers insured his life at Lloyd's of London at $2 million, placing him in the same category as Queen Victoria. That, again, is from Chernow's book. You can now ride from England to China on regular lines of steamships and railroads without once passing from the protecting hollow of Mr. Morgan's hand. That was written by McClure journalist Ray Baker in 1901. The Congress had tried to take on trusts and people like Morgan with the Sherman Antitrust Act. It was a response to the public concern about the, these giant controlling uh, industries that, that gobbled up transportation industry and commerce. The act aimed to stop the, the concentration of wealth and economic power in the hands of just a few blokes. It outlawed. Every contract, combination, or conspiracy in restraint of trade or interstate commerce. And it declared every attempt to monopolize any part of trade or commerce to be illegal. But it took a bit of a blow in the U.S. versus E.C. Knight Supreme Court case in that the court allowed that the act did not apply to manufacturing. So there was some view that, well, the Sherman Antitrust Act was quite powerful in the way it was written, the way it was applied, and the way it was interpreted by the Supreme Court made it not so powerful. Well, Roosevelt gave it a run. The formidable figure of Teddy Roosevelt took the Sherman Antitrust Act, rolled it up like a newspaper, and whopped the bottlenosed bruiser of Wall Street, J. Pierpoint Morgan, on the nose on February 21st, 1902. Philander C. Knox, the attorney general for uh, in the Roosevelt administration, prosecuted Northern Security Company using the Sherman Antitrust Act to argue that the company was an illegal combination acting in restraint of trade. The harm, claimed the government, was that the monopoly meant that it could charge freight companies whatever they wanted to. Once monopolies and trusts were established, consumers were often forced to accept high prices, inferior products, and, of course, workers were exploited through low wages, harsh and unsafe working conditions. And, oh, by the way, they weren't allowed to form labor unions. Under a headline, Knocks, Knocks Them Dizzy, the Los Angeles Times, where the headline writers were very happy with themselves, paints a picture of a wealthy New York industrialist absolutely blown over by the move by the attorney general. Here's the lead of that piece. Bankers of this city, identified with the formation of the Northern Securities Company, were greatly surprised to learn and at first refused to believe that Attorney General Knox is preparing a case against the company. Charles Steele is quoted in the L.A. Times piece. He's the member of the J.P. Morgan Company. After meeting with Morgan about uh, the attorney general's actions, Steele said, this came as a great surprise to all of us. No such action was expected. After this bill in equity, as suggested by Attorney General Knox, has been filed, we will be prepared to speak our line of defense. At present, we are wholly in the dark, but I will say that a long legal battle will ensue. We had not heard that President Roosevelt had asked for the opinion of the Attorney General in the matter, and although we have heard it from several sources in the last few hours, I am inclined to doubt the report. In other words, J.P. Morgan's man didn't think Roosevelt was really behind this. I mean, of course, he was, he was just not that kind of fellow. The Chicago Tribune reported on the reaction from Wall Street. 
Wall Street experienced a startling surprise today, wrote the paper. The greatest excitement prevailed in Wall Street, especially during the morning hours. Brokers' offices were crowded with customers eagerly scanning the bulletin boards. Even before the market opened, telephone orders to sell poured in. And when the stock exchange gong sounded for the opening business, there was a wild scramble to sell. Brokers who were on hand early expressed themselves as being dazed, incredulous, and indignant. There was a decided disinclination to talk for publication, but there was no hesitancy in expressing feelings denouncing the action of the president. A banker closely allied to the Morgan interests made this remark. The business of the country appears to be conducted at Washington now. Well, there's that sea change we talked about in the billboard paragraph. Continuing on with the Chicago uh, Tribune piece. Others pointed out that this was the first time in years when Wall Street was surprised by action of government at Washington. Heretofore, some inkling of of perspective moves has generally reached the street. Not so in this case, however. The first news of the Attorney General announcement reached New York late on Wednesday night. There was a conference of lawyers and bankers at the home of J. Pierpont Morgan. So now that's on the 21st. 22nd, Morgan and the rest of them come down to Washington. So during, and now we're back at where we started off. This is the dinner at Depew's home, the atmosphere dark, brooding. And here is where the New York Daily Tribune picks up the action. This is a contemporaneous report about that evening. It's entitled Morgan at the White House with other financiers and railroad men. He sees president Washington at 10 o'clock last night. Senator Depew telephoned to President Roosevelt to make an immediate appointment to introduce at the White House 13 distinguished men, including the most powerful financiers and representatives of railway and other industrial corporations of the United States. President Roosevelt invited Senator Depew to come to the White House with his party, which consisted of J. Pierpoint Morgan. These men are the members of the Corsair Club, which has been organized about 20 years. Senator Depew entertained the club at a dinner late last night at his home on 8th Street. When the time came to go to the White House, several automobile coaches and one or two other hacks were called, in which the club members rode to the White House. Upon leaving the White House, Senator Depew explained to a correspondent for the Tribune that the Corsair Club was organized by businessmen to escape business. Asked if in the course of the evening he had discussed the Northern Pacific merger suit, a subject in which the President Roosevelt is particularly interested at the time, he replied, no, not a word of it. Of course, that wasn't true. And this is then the article in which the uh, Tribune journalist suggests that maybe a, a meeting with Morgan was, it was in fact in the offing. What is the Corsair Club? It is fantastic. We'll put a link on the Slate Whistle Stop page associated with this edition to a story in the New York Times from 1913 about these men's dining clubs in New York. And the Corsair Club is one of them. And our and our good friend, uh, Senator Depew, is actually featured in that article in 1913. But in that article, here's a little whiff of what these um, clubs were like. The club is strung like a harp with about a dozen ringing intelligences, each answering to some chord of the macrocosm. They do well to dine together once in a while. A dinner party made up of such elements is the last triumph of civilization over barbarism. Nature and art combine to charm the senses. The equatorial zone of the system is soothed by well-studied artifices. The faculties are off-duty and fall into their natural attitudes. You see wisdom in slippers and science in a short jacket. So, fancy, fancy fellas dining together now so more on this meeting with, with the corsair club and the president this is from the another article at the time entitled morgan sees roosevelt tremendous pressure is being brought to bear upon president roosevelt to abandon the proceedings against the merger of the northern pacific and great northern railways which attorney general knox announced will begin in a few days j pierpoint morgan spent several hours with the president saturday night they arrived at the white house at 10 o'clock and did not leave their hotel for their hotel until one o'clock 
yesterday morning. The purpose of the conference was to persuade President Roosevelt not to file the bill in equity, which is to be the basis of the proposed action against the merger under the Sherman Antitrust Act. Now, this account, of course, has them discussing it. The previous one I read to you from the Tribune said they didn't discuss it at all. The arguments which they presented to the president in support of their position were twofold. One was that the merger does not come within the scope of the Sherman Antitrust Act, and the other that the action of the government had an unsettling effect upon the money and stock markets, which might become serious if the bill in equity being prepared by the attorney general was filed. The president is reported to have said to his visitors that the suit would be begun and the determination of its merits left to the court. He holds the position that if the merger is not a violation of the law, no harm can be done in determining that fact by resorting to the proper legal channels. If it is a violation of the Sherman Act, it ought to be dissolved. Then the article ends this way. It is believed in Washington that as a result of the visit of Mr. Morgan and his friends, the president's purpose to press the suit with vigor was somewhat shaken. Well, it turns out pundits were wrong then, too. This, of course, wasn't quite true. When Morgan visited the White House the next day, now we're on Sunday, Roosevelt proved that things were, that things were going to be difficult. Here is an account from Gerald Helfrich's uh, An Unlikely Trust of that meeting. And I'm just going to read you a little bit here from it because it's well played. Uh, The meeting between Morgan and Roosevelt that Sunday after the 10 o'clock Saturday night meeting. A wide white door opened and the visitors were admitted to the president's office. Crossing the tastefully patterned carpet, they skirted a great mantle surrounded by an enormous mirror. Directly ahead, set between two large windows, was the president's desk, a big, intricately carved affair that had been constructed from the timbers of the British warship HMS Resolute and presented to Rutherford Hayes by Queen Victoria. Waiting with the president was Attorney General Knox. As the visitors took their seat in the upholstered armchairs, Morgan, with customary directness, told the president he should have been given advanced warning to the action against Northern Securities. That is just what we did not want to do, Roosevelt answered. To the contrary, he had hoped by his actions to prevent violent fluctuations and disaster in the market, which would have resulted from a drawn-out period of uncertainty while the attorney general prepared his case. Morgan took a different tack. If we haven't done anything wrong, he told the president, send your man to my man and they can fix it up. This was, as Helfrich explains, an appeal to... Roosevelt as a member of the same class, right? Send your man to my man. These men, they know each other. I mean, this was uh, uh, this was a decidedly swampy pitch. You know, we're the kind of men who have men. In fact, our even our men have men. So men, 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 men. We know the club. We'll get it fixed and sorted, and then everybody will be go back and uh, and Bob's your uncle. But Attorney General Philander Chase Knox said, "We don't want to fix it. <laughs> we want to stop it." So this exchange of sentences, send your man to my man and they can fix it up. And then Knox responding, we don't want to fix it. We want to stop it with the president's support. That is right there the moment of the trust busting in the Teddy Roosevelt era. The appeal made upon class and clubbiness, the Corsair Club membership. Of course, Roosevelt wasn't a part of the Corsair Club, but you get the point. The wealthy, inside, clubby relationship between government and business your man, my man, they'll fix it up. We'll solve it. And Knox responding, we don't want to fix it. We want to stop it. When you're evaluating the emails between a person trying to lobby another person in the current day, this is the standard for what a non-cozy relationship should sound like. We don't want to fix it. We want to stop it. Morgan understood that the president meant to set a precedent with the suit. Are you going to attack my other interests? Morgan asked. 
if the steel trusts and the others, certainly not, the president said, unless we find out in any case that they have done something that we regard as wrong. Morgan warned that there would be disastrous consequences if the president interfered in the nation's financial affairs. But Roosevelt told him, I am neither a bull nor a bear in Morgan stock. I am president of the United States and I am sworn to execute the law. And I am also sworn to talk in ways that will sound pretty darn good many, 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 many years later. Anyway, sorry, (laughs) getting back to Roosevelt. I would proceed against you or any of your combinations as quick as I would against a striker, but not because I am opposed to either capital or labor, except as either of them may be violators of the laws of the country. We're still in Helfrich's an unlikely trust. When the visitors had left, Roosevelt could scarcely contain his ire. That is the most illuminating illustration of the Wall Street point of view, he told Knox. Mr. Morgan could not help regarding me as a big rival operator who either intended to ruin all his interests or else could be induced to come to an agreement to ruin none. But the president was determined that he, not Pierpoint Morgan, would decide which trusts were in the public interest and which were not. This, of course, did not make Mr. Morgan very happy about the old president. At one point when he was told that TR was going to Africa, he said, good, I hope the first lion that finds him does his duty. Well, that meeting did not go very well. Neither did any of the legal fights that uh, came after it. In 1903, a court court in St. Paul, Minnesota, backed the government in dissolving the Northern Securities Company, and the Supreme Court then narrowly upheld a decision a year later to support the president and not Pierpont Morgan. The Sherman Antitrust Act, moribund under McKinley, suddenly took on new life with T.R., This was a fun and fascinating moment in the Roosevelt presidency. It was the signature moment in the beginning of the trust busting. It was a major act in the rebalancing of the government and, of course, the reanimation of the Sherman Antitrust Act to be used as a weapon against corporate consolidation. But the David and Goliath battle, or maybe it's Goliath and Goliath, between Roosevelt and Morgan should not be considered the last word on this relationship. For that, Helfrich also makes a case that despite their contentious fights, Roosevelt and Morgan worked together together in later fights and in later instances on the same side, and that the tension between the two and the ways in which they worked actually together after that owes a lot or set the shapes and terms for the evolution of American business. That's beyond the scope of our moment here, which was to focus in on just that one meeting in the Oval Office and what led to it and what it what came after. TR never brought another antitrust case against a Morgan company, but maybe he didn't need to. The first one he brought gave rise to the definition of an era and a presidency. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. You can also send us an email to whistlestop at gmail.com. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. The executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher and trust buster extraordinary is Brian Rosenwald. He's one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. And thanks to Elizabeth Hinson. Uh, returning to the fold uh, for her great help uh, in uh, helping me research this. Dustin Gervais at CBS Radio, who hooked me up with the studio to record in and always uh, tightens us right up. And thanks to all of you for being out there and listening to this episode of Monopoly Today. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.